What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Cheeky Midweeky, where we are making strength and conditioning not boring anymore. In this episode, we have Ricky Stanzi, who is a coach. He's a former NFL player, and if you are in the Iowa area and an Iowa fan, he's on your Mount Rushmore of quarterbacks that played at Iowa, right? And I'm going to steal one of your quotes. If you don't like this podcast, you can leave it, right? Yeah. The greatest quotes ever, uh, talking about America. If you don't like it, you can leave it. Um, on one of the greatest teams probably ever uh, up there, at least debatable in Iowa, that uh, the 09 Orange Bowl team. So, Ricky Stanzi, thank you for being on the show, man. I look forward to talking to you, and thank you for being on the show because you could be doing a lot of other things right now, man. Hey, I appreciate you having me. Um, you know, I've always we always appreciate the opportunity at Gota, and then this one kind of doubled up. We got the strength yeah. thing, but we got the Iowa thing as well. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, no, and you're, you're, we can stick with the Iowa thing for a minute, but like that promo video that you had, like for you still, like you still kind of got to get the chills, right? Like just getting ready for football season because you said you're still a coach, but like when does it mm-hmm. go away? It, it doesn't go away. In fact, I was just telling this to, to our players in high school. I was like, it almost means more now. Like once you're older and now that I'm a dad and I see my, my kids getting into football, and like we just went to a, a card store the other day to pick out like they want to get football cards. They're all getting gassed up for the season. And like all these little things that when you're a player, you're so focused on the X's and O's. You're so focused on the game, you know, the, the worry, the, the excitement that you don't get to stop and like enjoy all the stuff that's around it. And, and I think I knew that. And we knew that as players when we were there at Iowa or when I was in high school, because the alums would come back and tell us that, but it's just one of those things like they'll say it to you, but you can't live it until you get to that point. So now I'm really having fun with it because I get those situations where Iowa calls back and, hey, we've got you know, a video we want to do. And I get to fly in for a day and, and be around it and still have that, you know, that just that like childlike excitement for the game of football and just very appreciative of the opportunities that I had there. Um, get to spend time with Kirk. I, I mean, I've said it before. I'll say it again. He's, he's the greatest. He's the best coach that I've ever had. There's not a person that um, I've heard say a bad thing about him in all the years that I've been around football. So yeah, like being back on campus, like being in the airport, this being in the Iowa airport was like, oh my, when was the last time I was here? So all that little stuff and, and then coupled with, you know, being at my high school, it's been a lot. Like the last two years, it's been really cool. Like kind of almost being done playing has allowed me to kind of refocus on almost that nostalgic that the, the past and and really reflect and have a, a, a boatload of gratitude for the times that I spent in very pivotal spots um, that that shaped me into you know the man I am today and and, and the father that I, I want to be and all those types of things. So I have just such a reverence for the game of football, and and it really couldn't be any. It's not any better to you know the best place to be in that spot is Iowa. Like I mean, are you talking about like? the state loves football, like Iowa city is football. So it's just been really great. And my, my high school kind of is like that mentality of that Iowa culture. So it's been, these last couple of years have been really fun for me. So hearing you talk about that, I want to know what some of the lessons that you've learned being in some of those highly successful locker rooms, mm-hmm. and how you translate that as a coach, because our members and our listeners out there are going to be like, okay, what can I take from him? Like you're, that's the best case scenario. You've been in great locker rooms, you know, like you've been the guy and the leader, and then now you're leading other people. That's what our mm-hmm. coaches are doing. What, what have you taken? How have you done that? The, I think the, the biggest thing that I try to point back to for young kids, because I kind of start there, like getting their, their minds right, 
is that it, there is a daily discipline to this thing. Like no matter what it is that you're chasing, there has to be some sort of deposit that you're willing to put in on a day to day, you know? And, and I think that there was the biggest lesson that I learned from my father when I was coming up and when, you know, cause you're going to face adversity, but you're also going to have success. And those pivotal moments there, those are the situational awareness that you have to have um, as someone that's able to look down the road and build a goal for yourself and build something that you want to work towards. If you find success, are you going to let go of the gas pedal a little bit and then take those next few days? If you find failure, are you going to let go of the gas pedal because you're deflated and you don't, the, the great ones. And I always try to look back to Michael Jordan, Tom Brady, Kobe Bryant, just the assassin mentality. Like if you just look at what they did, it was always back to every single day. I'm doing something. I'm chipping away. I'm building a routine. I have discipline about how I, how I go about my business. That was a big thing that Kirk instilled in us. You got to have a routine. You got to have a day to day. You got to have something. You have to have some sort of filter for mistakes. And, and that was a big piece, like have a filter for mistakes so that you can acknowledge those mistakes, correct those mistakes, and then also have a way as a teammate to bond closer to those that are around you. I think those two lessons I try to bring back to the young kids is like have some sort of filter that is making you aware of your mistakes. You're humbled by them, but you're excited that you're actively able to correct those mistakes. And then at the same time, just draw closer together as a team as you move through the season, because that's your only hope. Mm. Like as it gets closer to the, to when we're trying to get to that climax of the season, if you're not tight as a team, there's absolutely no chance. Like people talk about that 09 team. If there's one thing where they're like, yeah, there's a lot of talent, but I think even beyond the talent, because a lot of teams are talented. There was just a cohesion there that I don't even know if I could put words on it. It was just something that we all felt something that we all worked off of. And that I think was the cornerstone that allowed us to go ahead and have success. So, you know, having a filter for mistakes, being aware of, you know, what you're doing wrong and how you can do it better. That is a part of those daily deposits and that tracking and that discipline, and then finding a way to be a better teammate. You know, however you have to facilitate that, it might be different for a freshman. It may be different for the 15 year coaching vet. You know, they each have a certain way that they're going to have to handle themselves to benefit that team and you have to kind of find that role and then let it ebb and flow as you kind of go through your career. How do you get teams to, to find that cohesion that you found? Like you said, you talked about the 09 team. How, how have you seen it in college and in uh, the NFL? Yeah, I think, you know, the, for like a strength coach, for someone that, you know, like Doyle was always, he was there. Like that was the guy we were with all the time. And you, you do team building stuff. I mean, it's, you know, as simple as it, it, it sounds, and I see that happening. Our high school team did it. We did it at, at Iowa, where you would literally draft teams and you would build little squads and then you would compete. And I think maybe that's the, you know, the, the umbrella, the overarching word that you're looking for is putting yourselves in competitive situations where y you have a chance to be tested and you have a chance to rise to the occasion in front of your brothers so that there is a respect factor there. But then you also have that opportunity when when a, when one of your brother falters or, or we fail, there's a chance to kind of pick them back up and, and put your hand on their back and say, hey, it's OK. You know, where sometimes I think if we're just exercising together, we're just kind of looking at our car and we're walking around doing our sets, yada, yada, yada. Like, OK, yeah, see a high five. Maybe we have lunch together and then we go our separate ways. 
But the second that you bring like some sort of competitiveness, inner squad competitiveness, now you have at least gotten as close to the sort of situational awareness that will show itself on Saturday. You know, and that was what I think Doyle and Kirk were trying to prepare us for was that no matter what we do in these workouts and in these practices, there's still like a learning curve for Saturday on the sidelines that you do just have to go through it. But they got us as close to that as possible by just everything was, it was one way, it was the Iowa way, it was a brotherhood, it was culture, it was these words that were being used over and over again. And there was these actions and these, these things that you would go through as a player um, in the offseason. Then when it got to Saturday, the coaches backed it up. The coaches, it was the most uplifting, positive environment I could have ever imagined on a sideline Saturday in Kinnick. And, and, and I know that because I tested the positivity a, a few times, you know, like in, when we played in Indiana, the Halloween yeah, games. Yeah, like yeah. if there's a time to lose patience, maybe it's then, right? And it, there wasn't. though. And I, and I point back to that game because it just – it starts top down, starts with Kirk. He handled himself a certain way, and then ba-boom, ba-boom. Everybody else handled them, themselves that way at the same time. So I think there's just this preparation in the offseason. I really like the team-building stuff because you have to be in competitive environments because it brings something else out of it. It puts conversations on the table that just aren't going to happen if we're just kind of going through the motions as a team together. That's no different than if we're sitting in a classroom learning social studies together. You're not going to bond with that person across the desk or across the way. You don't have nothing there that you're in, that you're going for together. So clearly lay out the you know the, the the goals that you have for your squad. We can all relate to them and then we go and compete for those goals together. How does NLI affect that though? Cuz hearing you say that it's, yeah. it's almost like okay, well why don't they do that in the pros? And then it's like okay, well then does it still work in the NLI world of today. You know, it's a that's a great point and I think that it's a it's a new layer to this and it's something that we'll all have to walk, to work through and and keep a close eye on as it as it as it unfolds because we really just don't know. You know, it's almost in a sense that college is turned into pro you could easily make that case that the college levels is just, it's now what the USFL in the XFL, like it's kind of that idea. Like it's now it's, you know, you like they were working hard to build that. And I always thought that was a great idea, a minor league of sorts. And it's still valuable because there's just the roster bubble is so tight in the NFL that you do need people. When guys are on the couch, you need a spot for them to cultivate and grow. And, you're seeing a lot of XFL and USFL guys get opportunities, and I think that's beautiful. And that's a spot that was missing from NFL that is clearly set up in the NBA, the NHL, and the MLB. But now from a college standpoint, what's even more interesting is it's not even just college now. High school kids are worth millions. Really? Grade school kids might be worth millions based off of social media and stuff. So it's like it's one of these things that like I don't know. I don't know if, if – it's going to create more urgency for a coach to create culture. I think that teams like an Iowa, a Clemson, an Ohio State, an Alabama, they have such rich tradition. There's so much culture that goes into college football. I think what benefits you here with this situation is that we know that pageantry, that culture, that tradition of amateur, and it is in our culture just as like the general population for now. And I do think that those traditions of college football are still going to be upheld. And I think that those traditions are what the young kids can buy into 
and still have the benefit of the NIL and all those things. I, I thought a, a, a good idea was brought up to me by LeVar Woods. Obviously, you know LeVar. The man. Um, LeVar the Woods man. is the, the legend. You guys don't know who he is. I mean, LeVar, I reached, I, I reached out to him in January or December of last year. Like, the, I mean, if there's anybody that could be the next head coach, like you said, KS yes. is a legend. But, like, who would be better to replace him than LeVar? But yes. That's, that's an aside, sorry. Yes. No, no, we, we had to take a chance to, to love on LeVar there for a second. He's, you know, an outstanding coach. He played in the NFL. He had brought up a good point. This was back, way back when, if you remember when, I think it was like a Northwestern quarterback started to poke at this, like, hey, college kids should be paid situation. And he got lapped off the stage. But I think he started that NIL conversation. And he kind of was the, you know, he... He he laid on the on the on the sword there for for everybody else and, and started the conversation. It was almost laughed at by the NCAA. But Lavar brought up a good point: is what if you could sign deals? What if you could broker deals? You could do all this stuff of the NIL, but it went into a fund that you then were able to tap into once you graduated, once you went through your cycle. So now you're able to build this wealth. And then you can grab that wealth when you're in a better position, not only mentally, you but you kind of need it more. Yeah, you probably need it more. And it's it would still be challenging at that point because I've seen this in the NFL where young you're still a young man. Like you don't know that you don't know anything in college until you're out of college. <laughs> like you're out of college, like, well, I was a baby. Like I didn't know anything. And then even first three, four years in the pros, I was a baby. I didn't know anything. And this money situation is tricky. Because now it's 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 you're getting it even younger, and it was already a problem when NFL guys were getting the money at 22, 23. That's why they got rid of that, right? Yeah. Now you're getting it at 18, 19, possibly 17. So we're used to as a society accumulating wealth as we go through the stages of our lives. We gain more awareness. We have a wife. We settle down. We buy a house. We have some kids. You get perspective as you're getting money. Now you're young, and you don't quite have perspective yet, but you have a lot of money. So you could make poor decisions. I think maybe that's what everybody's biggest fear of the NIL is. That, I know that's my fear because at the same time, I think these guys should get paid. I mean, I really do. Like selfishly, I would have loved to see what the NIL did for me when I dropped Love It or Leave It. As like, a strength coach, you know how much I would have loved or how much I love it? It's like, hey, wait a minute. The walk-on kids or the kids that need money and it's like you can actually sleep and rest and hopefully get paid with your brand just from an endorsement yeah. deal or filming some commercials. And now you don't have to train at a weird time in the summertime or any of this other stuff because you've got it taken care of. Like, love it. Yeah, there was a lot of errors. There was a lot of holes in that gap. Like, And they were just kind of living off of the – well, amateurism, it's pure, you know, it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's this, and you I think were around with the bagel rule though, back when you could have a bagel as a snack, but if it had cream cheese, it was a meal. Like you were around for that. Right. It was tight. It was tight times. Like it was just like all the little stuff that was going on. I mean, that was when, remember like the Ohio state stuff, like Terrell Pryor and them just being like drugged through the, you know, the coals over these like tattoos. And like, it's just such little stuff. Like you look back on it. It's like, why are we making a big deal out of it? Well, because it's a rule. And, and, but like, if you really stopped and thought about it, everybody knew it was ridiculous. I mean, nobody's going to sit there and say it's not because of what those players mean to that university and how it's being, you know, how it's blown up nationally. So it's, it's a interesting time. I still think though, that for right now, at least the culture, the tradition of these schools is so deeply embedded that there is still this school vibe to it. I think that, Knowing that at least when you go there, you have at least signed up for four to five years, 
potentially. That's kind of I know that that's somewhat similar to the NFL, but it's like there's a chance to build something there. And I, and I know this to be true in the NFL as well, though. Like when you had those four or five year vets that stayed the four to five years plus, they started to really etch culture. So you still have culture, you still have tradition in the NFL. It just gets such an overturn from time to time that it's tougher. You know, it's easy to build legacies back in the 70s and the 80s. It's a little more challenging to do now, but they're still doing it. You look at the Chiefs, they're still doing it. Tom Brady did it. So it's, it, you know, you look at the Ravens, you look at the Niners, they're do, there's a lot of teams that are doing it. And it's, we have to learn as a society, the young kids have to learn, hey, go get your money, but you also have to learn how to be about something bigger than yourself. And there's a balance there. And I think we'll all work through it, but it's it's for the better. This had to happen. It's just one of those things that you have to work through and, and deal with the bugs in the meantime. The different universities and pro teams that you've talked about all have steady leadership at the top, whether it be the coach or the GM mm -hmm. or ADs. That seems to just be the key to success with any of it, no? Yeah, that won't ever change. Um, I don't see that fundamental you know, building block, so to speak, of – not only a sports team, but any Fortune 500 company is going to have the same discussion. Like that's what I learned from Kirk when we would sit in those, you know, Monday or Tuesday meetings after the game, and it was, it was about life, the talks, the, the the lessons, and and he was our top down. So you're getting this information, and you're wondering why the machine works the way the machine works, and you're wondering why the success shows up like it shows up, and it has to start there, and it doesn't have to be a big change at once, but whoever up there at the top has to have a steady message. So, you know, these are essentially corporations. You know, Iowa's a corporation in a sense. Even the football team can be looked at that way. Where's your CEO? Where does he stand on things? How does he speak? How does he carry himself? That sets a precedent. So that is something that it's, you can learn it through football and then take it to your house. You could do that as a father. You can have that understanding and that awareness that, I can shrink this down and I can under I can realize that how I behave as a father, how I behave as a husband is going to be a top-down culture reset, you know, for my family, for our household. And and then if you go to work at a company, right? And let's say you're fortunate enough to be higher up or maybe you're lower down. Either way, you can at least understand how the hierarchy works so that you can start to work your way up. You can understand the things that that top-down leader would want to see from you at the bottom that would then allow you to ascend. And then if you're around good people that have had a nice hierarchy like Kirk has and you are put in a position of leadership and you have this responsibility, you're more equipped to handle those that are below you in a way that's going to be respectful to them and is going to pull as much potential out of them as possible. So I think it just comes back to being aware of your surroundings and knowing that it's not always about you. You have to take care of your stuff, but you have to be able to play nice. You have to be able to play with the group. You have to be able to work together because we will get things done together. That's how companies are successful. That's how households are successful. And that's obviously how sports teams are successful. <clears throat> Were you a multi-sport athlete in high school? And if so, talk about what that was like and any advice to our coaches that are, mm -hmm. you know, that work in the high school sector. Cause we got high school, private, um, college pro talk about what it's like you know the strength training demands when you were a kid mm -hmm. and then into college and then professional and just kind of how it's all ebb and flowed for you yeah I, I would say that I felt like in high school 
I was in that like early transition where like specialized strength and conditioning, specialized positions was just starting to be talked about because I remember I wrestled a lot with, I was a two sport athlete. I was basketball and football and I, I loved basketball. Like that was probably the sport that came more naturally to me. I didn't have to, you know, football was one of those, I was more likely to make money playing football but I felt more natural playing basketball. So there was a business decision I made early on in high school because I had looks from basketball teams, but I was like, dude, you're 6'5", you're not that fast, uh, you're not fast enough. And you can't, you, you got a good shot, but you can't really like pour it up. And you need those things as a basketball player. So um, it was a business decision in a sense to, to go play football. But I'm very happy that I stayed with basketball my senior year because that was a big thing that I was going back and forth with. Um, with those that I uh, looked up to, not only my father, but my coaches, um, friends. I was like, do I play basketball? You know, I'm committed to Iowa. There's this risk that's perceived, you know, if I'm running around out there. Um, but there's nothing better for a young athlete than being in a competitive environment. I mean, I just, I think that you can't get enough of those scenarios. They don't just happen on a Tuesday when you're out in your backyard working hard, you know, that's great. You're working hard and you're going through this stuff and you are putting in inputs, but man, when those lights hit and you cross the white lines and, and friends and family are looking and it means something, I think you should interject yourself into those situations. Cause you even, you haven't even had enough of them. If you're a high school football player, you've had some grade school stuff. Half of grade school is you don't even know what's going on. You're just figuring out how to get your uniform on. Right? So you finally get to high school. And now you have this, you know, you're, you're starting to learn how to compete. You're starting to learn how to be a good teammate. And then all of a sudden we shrink down to one sport and it's like, we just, and we hyper-focus on this thing. And then we have this weird off season where we, you know, it's easy to get lazy. I always felt that it was like football's over. I'm going right into basketball. I'm keeping this thing rolling. I'm keeping myself in shape. I'm keeping everything going. And then once basketball is ending, then I can get right back into football. And I know athletes that do the basketball football baseball thing and I think it's good I think that you push your athletes towards that I think that more sports the better and I think that's the thing that you should do when they're younger try soccer you know try tennis try golf get into a martial arts I would highly recommend for fathers and mothers to put their child into some sort of martial arts I took Kempo my father was a boxer he was a golden glove champion in Cleveland in 1982 so the boxing world the fighting world was a, a thing in our house, like raised off Rocky, like literally raised off the Rocky movies. Like this is how we're going to conduct ourselves. Okay. Like Rocky four, when you hit this adversity, let's put on the Rocky four tape. And so he was big on the martial arts. And so I kind of gravitated towards that. I got a little bit more into the Bruce Lee world. Like I became a big Bruce Lee fan. I was watching a lot of Jackie Chan movies. I was into ninja and samurai culture at a young age. So my dad was like, let's go try out karate. So we, this was before MMA was kind of like jujitsu is obviously probably what I would have done now just because of the popularity. But at the time, Kempo Karate was a big deal, um, you know, at least where I was. So I got into it. And man, the lessons that you'll learn from Kempo, it's interesting. Like you can be just karate in general. I would say fighting in general, like big picture right now. Um, you're on a team, but you're also solo. It's weird. Like you have this, you know, we had like you're on a you're doing your own thing. You're there because you signed up. But we were able to kind of have these traveling teams that would go and compete in these in these tournaments. But like when you're, you know, I started when I was like five. I did it from five to age nine. Like when you're seven years old and you're at a tournament and there's some kid from, you know, Southern Ohio, you don't know. And you're in a sparring match now. And this kid just kicked you in the gut 
and you got to sit there and you just went down 0-1 and you got to now like not cry in front of your dad, not cry in front of your family and hang in there and try to land a punch. I don't know. I feel like it was something that was important for me as a seven or eight year old. And I just think that that whole concept of like fighting and martial arts is like, it's been a backdrop for culture and for, for centuries. Right. And it's like, it's finally now kind of getting that push through jujitsu and MMA with its popularity. And I think that's a good one. Like, I think that's one where you should, you should have some sort of martial arts background. Um, just even if it's just for the discipline, even if it's just for the life lessons, let alone, you know, can you put somebody in an arm bar? Maybe, maybe not, maybe you're good, but at least like the, the, the discipline that came from karate, I know for certain that was a huge cornerstone for me as I went through grade school and high school. And I had an edge on the kids around my area because I was in that, that karate backdrop. You know, hearing you say that, I just, I, I wonder like, okay, you're clearly just, you were raised right. You were raised, you had this toughness, never quit mentality. Like, <clears throat> so the competitive environment, yeah, it maybe helped refine it, but did it, it, it really just brought it out of you, right? It didn't, mm -hmm. it didn't teach you something that you didn't know, right? Or like, Yeah, I mean, I knew it. Like I knew it to be true because I heard it from my father, you know, and I, and I, and I saw these things on TV, whether it's a movie or whether it's real life, Tom Brady, you know, coming back in the Super Bowl and winning, like, you know, it to be true by the way that it moves you, you know, it does something to you on the inside. Rocky's not a true story, but you feel a type of way. You feel some sort of way when you watch that it does something to you because you know that that's the way, like, that's how you conduct yourself. Like, that's how you attack the day to day. You know, you watch these great athletes and you watch Jordan, you watch Kobe, you watch Tom Brady. And you're like, yeah, that's the way. But you still could be there believing it and agreeing with it, but not able to execute it and carry it out. And that was something I had to learn as a young man. And I, thankfully, like you brought up, I you know, was raised right. I had a father that he took the time to, hey, when I want to go out and throw passes or whatever it was, yes, let's go out there. But even more important was the conversations in the car after a loss after a win, whatever it may be, like after you have gone and crossed the white lines, and this, this is the scary part about competition is that you're placing yourself in the rectangle for judgment, for criticism. And that's where the fear and the anxiety comes is that like, especially you know, once you, age. Yeah. especially at a young age, you know, once you get into this rectangle, once you get into this court, all eyes are on you. All mistakes are recorded. All mistakes will not only be recorded, but they will be gone over. That's something you have to learn to deal with, right? And that's not anything that can be put into a written test. You can't watch a video and get that information. You have to live those, those situations out. That's why I say get in a competitive environment because I don't care if it's pickleball or it's football. Like it's a competitive environment. It will do something to you. It will move the needle in a direction where you learn how to compete. And I know that I started tackle football in second grade man, I tried to quit tackle football three times. Like there was, you know what I mean? If you were to say at that point, man, is Rick going to go play in the NFL? No, like there was a lot of ebbs and flows to grade school, even high school. I remember having a conversation with my dad sophomore year of high school. I'm like, dad, I'm just going to concentrate on basketball. Like football is not for me. Like this isn't my thing. I was frustrated. I was going through a time, you know, I was going through a trial, needed some guidance at that point, had the person there to give me the guidance. But you know, 
all the lessons in the backdrop were there that I felt like when I was taking shots and I was getting adversity, I had ropes to lean into, you know, like I had something to fall back on and, and that's important. And if you don't put ropes behind your kids, if you don't put ropes behind people and, and, and then you throw them into a situation where they can fail and they probably will fail and should fail early on, they end up falling out of the ring and they hit their head and they don't want to come back. So you have to have some sort of, you have to have both. You have to layer in the teachings. You have to have it become a backdrop, a culture of the day-to-day like my father did. It was just a way that we, you know, nobody intimidates a Stanzi. We do the intimidating. Okay. That was a, that was a okay. quote that I, like I that. remember just all the time, all the time. Like something comes up, like you're going to let that kid do that to you? Like when you have the Stanzi name, like those are the talks I'm getting as a six and seven year old. So it's like, you're getting dialed, right? Like, and it's, it's not everybody's going to have that conversation because not everybody has a Joe Stanzi in their corner. But I've learned that, you know, if you can create that situation for your children, there's a way to push on it, but not, you know, be that like Netflix documentary where it's the overbearing parent. It's like, Oh God, like that wasn't my childhood by any means. Not at all. Like, you know, I felt like I had like Rocky had Mickey, like I had that, you know what I mean? Like you wanted it. Like as a kid, you wanted to do it. And I think that's probably another piece of it. You know, does the kid want it? Do they want to be, do they want to be great? And that was something that I don't know where it came from. Maybe it was my father just spending time or getting, you know, almost, you know, engulfed in the, the sports world, but having both those things, having an ear that, you know, having someone to talk to and someone to talk back to you. Um, once you're going through these challenge situations, that really helped me learn how to compete so that when we do get to an Iowa, you know, you have a chance to go do some great things with some really good football teams. And that's why I asked, because I remember Cody Myers, who's still at Iowa now, he, he talked when I was there and we were talking about Josie Jewell and like, we're like, we didn't make Josie who Josie is like Josie's been his parent, like, right. And so it's like. Yes, we help reveal it, but that, that's mm-hmm. where it's like, for me, I get hung up on these coaches where they feel like, oh, you know, I made so-and-so. And it's like, no, you have to check yourself. Like, you're a part of it. And, and maybe in some kids, in some instances where they had no family life, you were that. But just, yeah, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to learn where's that line, you know? And for our listeners out there, like, where is that? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great point. I mean, my, my business partner, Gary Scheffler um, at Goda, he was fortunate enough that, that we're down in New Orleans, right? And so the, the talent is rich in that area, especially in Marrero. Well, he had Jamar Chase from the seventh grade, seventh, eighth grade. And he always says, he goes, I didn't make Jamar Chase, Jamar Chase. It's like Jamar Chase was going to be Jamar Chase. The man's the man is what Gary always says. He goes, the man is the man. He goes, all I could potentially do was ruin it or get in his way or something like that. You know, I think that's the only thing that, he would ever say is like, you could only really mess them up because I think that's what happens is, especially now more and more with social media, the baby Gronks of the world, you know, it's like, look that, at the, that was terrible. That was the terrible. exploitation that happens in the, the distraction. And I, I've seen this with young athletes. Now that we're over specialized, now that we have so many opportunities to go work with this guy or work with that guy, sometimes it's too much. It's too many voices in this young athlete's ear and they can't just go be a kid and just go do what is kind of natural in a sense, go play, go compete, right? Guy hits you. What do you want to do? I want to hit him back. There you go. Like, that's all you need to know. Like, it's pretty, it's pretty innate in my sense. Like you slap me across the face. My first thing is like, hold on a second. Like you just re- you turn into to that mode. So at the same time, 
I do think that the strength coach has the ability to reinforce culture, has the ability to stamp tradition, has the ability to be there when the coach literally can't be there and now has, a, has an opportunity to help bring this camaraderie to a new level. I felt that, you know, in, in kind of check you on some stuff, like that's where I felt that, you know, Doyle was, was huge, was just making you a better person, making you see sort of your behavior. Like, do you see how you're behaving right now? Do you see how you're conducting yourself as we go through this foam roller drill? It, it matters. Like whether you think it matters or not, like it matters. We can talk about the foam roller and, and what it may do or may not do. It's not the point. It's the, the point is that you've been asked to do something and you're doing it with less than desirable effort. And more chances are, chances are that when it's third and eight, I'll see that same effort because that's who you are. You handle yourself like that today, you're going to handle yourself like that third and eight when we're under the lights. And so that's where I think the strength coach can be there to like, hey, no more grab ass, like get, get involved. But you know, when it comes to are we making people who they are? Quick break from the show to remind you to hit that like and subscribe button. It helps us out and it helps you be notified when we have new content get released. So again, please hit that like and subscribe button if you enjoy this content. And with that, let's get back to the show. That's that's tough. I think everybody plays a role. I think that it, it takes a tribe to raise, a, you know, to raise a child kind of thing. And the, it doesn't hurt to have great voices to have great people, you know, or in your corner. So you need both. You need to have the, the tenacity. You got to be able to do it yourself, but you also have to have a good team um, around you. It makes things a lot easier. Let's say that. I'm interested to hear your, your thoughts on it because I, you know, obviously in Iowa it was every little thing does matter. And, mm -hmm. you know, you go down that rabbit hole and then you, I worked with some amazing assistants where they're almost, they kind of challenged my beliefs and they're like, you know, okay. If every if everything matters, then nothing matters, and then they're also like, if it's a little thing, maybe it matters little compared. Like, how do you mm -hmm. handle little things mattering, and then battling the okay, when does it really matter type deal? Like, and and this is for me just as much as any of our listeners out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's a it's a challenging um, sort of thing to to always be on top of the little details, but at the same time as a coach, not get to the point where you get an eye roll from the athlete. And like for a DB that like, or you, like you said, you had to forget those four interceptions to lead the comeback right. win, right? Or right. like a DB that gets burnt, like, so yep. yeah, that it matters, but like, how do you let it go? Mm -hmm. Well, it was five interceptions. It was five. Not four. <laughs> I had to check you. This is a funny one. It's a, it's a, it's a great that we can laugh about it now. But no, it's, I think that that is, that's a situation where like, dude, like the little things to me are like, did you pick up your trash? Like when you, when you finish something, like, I know that one's kind of like, and maybe it's a cliche, but like that one means something to me. Cause it's like a character thing. It's like, it's how you're handling, it's how, it's like a respect. Like, I think when the little things point to respect, then they mean something, right? Like when it, when it's pointing to respect, if it's pointing to effort, if it's pointing to attitude, if that little thing maybe falls into those those categories, I think we should we should hyperanalyze it. Even if it's something as little as, dude, why'd you leave your Gatorade bottle right there? Like, you know what I mean? Like, get into the habit of that. I think another one that we do that is important is why are you walking on the field, right? Not only does it look bad, but it's inefficient and it shows you that your effort maybe isn't where it should be. So that's why it's like 
hey, we need to jog everywhere that we're going. We need to move around. We need to be on a, on a bounce because it's showing that we have a good attitude, that we're giving good effort, right? So it's a little thing, but it ends up being a big thing because it sets precedent, it sets culture. And these little habits that you maybe instill, let's just say, take the experiment of you get one class, you get a freshman class, then they become your sophomore class, then they're juniors, then they're seniors, and you're building, you're bringing new classes in behind them. Well, you would love to have the point be that once your seniors are settled, you've set culture. The seniors will behave a certain way, and the juniors, out of fear or out of respect, will behave like the seniors and so on and so forth down the line. So now that, that moment that you took with that senior to say, hey, pick up that trash, jog off the field, and they learned that lesson, now you have a good culture inside of you know, your organization or your team. So it's, it's little details can get you beat, and I think that the reason that coaches are so hone in on that is because like when you break down a game after a Saturday and it's Sunday and you're looking at the game tape, you usually can point back to like four or five crucial plays and they're always surrounding little details. And so coaches are constantly seeing this and it's like, you don't have 70 plays to figure it out. Like it seems that way. That's the illusion. The reality is you had to take it one play at a time because it was that fifth play where we did this that you know, if we do that differently, you have to analyze it that way. And it's we're kind of speaking out of both sides of our mouths because we'll also say, hey, you made a mistake in the first quarter, but we'll also say, hey, you gotta flush that and learn how to play on from there and treat it as a new situation. So there is this, you know, we're building something, so we have a long view, but there also is this like we want our kids to be goldfish at the same time and have this short memory and be able to play one play at a time. That is a tricky thing that is maybe never going to be perfect. And it's just something as a coach you try to find balance with. The more you talk about it, I'm just like, it's amazing. The coaches that can be successful or even just get into the field of just how difficult it is. Like, and, and you're, now you're working with complex systems of human beings that have emotions, thoughts, and all these other things going on, right? Yeah, you're trying to shape behavior. You're trying to cultivate behavior you're trying to get somebody to do something without putting your hand on them like you can't grab somebody and make them go make the tackle you have to you know you can't you can't fish for them you have to teach them how to fish it's that old you know saying it's like that's the biggest challenge for a coach is that a coach wants it so bad because they know what it takes to get there because they've either done it as a player most have or they've just seen enough revolutions of this thing to be like that doesn't work <laughs> that doesn't work and so getting that behavior out that you want to see from your kids, the next layer to it is you treat everybody fair, but you don't treat them the same because somebody might, you know, if a Rick Stanzi's in the room, you might be able to push on that kid and coach him a little different because of his household and where he came from. You can lean on that. Somebody else, you may not be able to push on them the same way. They may react. They may have a knee jerk reaction that now they're in their cave they're in a hole and you're not going to pull them back out of that because the one thing you said as a coach where that same statement might have been said to some other kid and he might have took it you know, with a, a, a straight look and he was coachable. So you have to learn your locker room a little bit and know who you're dealing with, know what you can say at the right times to kind of get them to bring out their best behavior because at the end of the day, that's your real goal. I want your best behavior. I want you to reach your full potential. Well, if we're really saying that as a coach, we want them to reach their full potential, then we have to acknowledge and honor who they are currently as a person. And maybe there is something you want to say, but you can put that off until you see you know, a progression of steps to where you can start to nip that thing in the butt or whatever it is you're 
you're trying to fix. But it's a delicate balance. It's it's imperfect. That's why we have these conversations, right? Amen. Um, switching gears to the training side of it, I have. You're wearing the GoTo shirt. I've never really been educated on it. Um, mm-hmm. Explain to me. What got you interested into it coming from a place of Iowa where, you know, essentially it's, hey, you're going to, you know, clean, squat, bench, yep. traditional stuff. Mm-hmm. And how did you get into it? What's the origin? Just treat me as if I'm the person I am. I have no idea about it. And if our listeners have no idea about it. Okay. Um, so 2010, 2011, I'm, I'm working my way into the draft process. At that point, I felt that I had deficiencies from a movement standpoint. I felt that I wasn't moving quick enough in the pocket. Um, my arm motion wasn't fast enough. And in this new wave, this new age of offense where I was going to have to play from the gun and more RPO and bubbles and quicks and things that we didn't necessarily do a lot of at Iowa, I was going to play quicker in the pocket. So like that was kind of my mindset going into the draft process. And so I started to try to, you know, pull back every curtain that I could. And I was able to cross paths with Tom Martinez, who has since passed, but was Tom Brady's throwing coach since he was 12. So he was, you know, he knew Tom, he knew the family. I think he coached Tom's sister in softball and, and just had helped Tom build his motion up to that point. And so he was the first person that gave me this, like, he started talking about sagittal plane, frontal plane, transverse. He was talking biomechanics. I had never really gotten into that world or thought too much about how I threw a football before. I just kind of spun it. Like it just came natural. And, and so when I got to that point, then I started to go like real deep into the analyzation of the throwing motion. Like I really wanted to look at it. I wanted to analyze it. I wanted to understand it more. And that began my journey. From that point on, I was starting to notice like little breakdown in my body that was just, you know, an, an accumulation of things, pulling muscles I had never pulled. Um, back spasms were always an issue for me. I would have a lot of back spasms that would have back issues since I was young. That was something that I was that that had been a a career long thing, not just in the NFL draft process. That was from high school and it was working its way through until this point I was in the NFL. And so it was now like, okay, I'm looking for things to like heal me a little bit. I had gotten a a pretty intense car accident in 2009, Mm. right before the season, I flipped my car. And I did some damage to my left side that like just throughout the accumulating years, for some reason I had this left shoulder that was like locked up and I had torn my right AC joint. So, you know, you're going through these battles and these scars of playing football. I have an MCL, I've got an ankle, I got all this stuff. And then on top of that, yeah, you had the, you had the, the famous tightrope ankle. I had the tightrope and I also had a, you know, an MCL on my left knee that I, that I played through. It was in the Iowa state game in, in, in 09. Um, I just just ran through that one and then I get the car accident and it's like by the time I got to that, you know, second year in the NFL, like the injuries and the inefficiency had forced me to ask questions. So now I'm starting to look for, I was always into Olympic lifting. I loved it. I thought, you know, this is, this was the way it 2015, I was coaching a high school down in um, Jacksonville and I was part of teaching them the Olympic lifting. Like that's, that's where I was. I was, the, one of the first books I got into was Kelly Sturette's Supple Leopard. So I got into Supple Leopard at the same time. That was sort of my like Western lens that I was looking at, but I was also looking in the Eastern world and I was, you know, back into martial arts. I was looking at the Shaolin monks because they're on YouTube, just flipping around, flying around. I'm like, what are they doing? I was just in this very curious mode 
when it came to human movement, it was a new thing for me. So I just kept going and kept going with it. And I was reading all these books on Eastern art, Western art, looking into the gymnastics world, looking into the strict body strength, looking into more into the Olympic lifting and powerlifting world, trying using that supple leopard book as a lens, but also getting some great concepts from Kelly about torque, torque principles that I was able to help build off of. Once I finally met Gary and Gilly, and that's kind of where my go to story starts is very Who's late Gary in the Gilly. I don't yeah, know. so Gary and Gilly. So Gilly Jose Bosch is his name. His middle name is Guillermo, so we called him Coach Gilly. That was kind of his nickname growing up. So Gilly is the founder of Goda. Gary Scheffler, my business partner now, is the sort of the first gym, the first strength coach that Gilly went to and kind of pitched this concept to and got Gary to give him enough of his ear. And through a few years of trial and error and kind of talking back and forth, Gary then really adopted this, what soon to be, you know, it became the go to system. I was along my journey, you know, 2017, 2018, the go to journey for them really kind of gets started like 2016, 2017, I believe. Um, they start to kind of look at it like, Hey, we might have something here, but there's a, you know, predate to that for Gilly, as far as him finding the evidence that he then brought to Gary. 2019 is when I come into Goda. So I come into Goda, 2019. I've been looking around. I found this book um, one night, searching Amazon, looking for just biomechanical books and, and anything that I could get my hands on. There was a book called Muscles and Meridians by Philip Beach. And I picked up that book for some reason, something told me to pick it up, and I bought it. And he talked about spinal engine. He talked about the movement of the facet joints. He just he gave me and pulled back a layer, another layer. So I buy spinal engine. So I start to look at who's, you know, that's very different than what we were taught, right? Core brace, core brace. And so I started to look at like Friette's laws of motion with the spine. I started looking at Sergey Grakovetsky's work with the spinal engine and what Philip Beach was doing with these full scale sort of, you know, integrated concepts to how the muscles are sewn around the skeleton and how it's designed in the embryological perspective. So what we're literally developing like in the embryo is a repetitive process that Philip Beach had kind of spent time studying. So all of this stuff was like, whoa, this is super new. Who else is talking about spinal engine, right? Like who else is talking about this in the space? Because like I, I came from, you know, core brace world. I came from, you know, you know, we lock our core, we don't move it. So that was like the first like piece of evidence that made me go look further. Once I found Gilly and Gary and they were talking about the spinal engine and this movement, the first thing that jumped off the page was that they were using slow motion video. So me being a quarterback watching tape, I'm like, oh, this is, this is interesting. I'll spend more time looking at this. And then I started the conversations with Gilly. And Gilly was really the first coach that didn't tell me what to think, just told me where to look. And he said, I want you to go look at all of the non-contact injuries. Just get as many non-contact ACLs, Achilles, um, hyperextensions, ankle rolls that you can get, look at those on tape, and then start to look at the deadlift, the Olympic lift. Look at how you're using your foot basically in an Olympic lift, in a deadlift, in a power lift scenario, and then look at the injuries. And I was like, man, they're really close. Like they, they look exactly the same. I can't find one that doesn't look like this. And then at the same time, he was showing me like, okay, look at these durable humans. Like look at these guys that are able to, in an environment where you know you're probably gonna get hurt, you got bodies flying around you they're able to push 10 
12, maybe 15 years in a competitive contact sport and have relatively low injury numbers compared to the rest of the population. And what he started to show me was this thing called GOTA. And GOTA stands for the greatest of all time actions. So what he did or what his question was is how does a body travel through space for a lifetime and never get hurt for no apparent reason, right? Gilly was a person who he had wrecked his back at three levels. So he was a candidate for a cage. Like they were going to cage Gilly's lumbar spine because he had three levels of his lumbar that degenerated. He threw out one at a time and they all blew out and he was like just L1, at this one L2 L3. Yeah, like a L1 L2 L3 situation where he's like bone on bone. It's a bad situation. They might have to cage you. He's going to all the best doctors, all the best orthos. He's not getting the information. You know, he can't wrestle with his kids on the ground. Like very emotional time for him. He gets a break when he finds Pete Agoscue. So Pete Agoscue, the Agoscue method, was really his first break into a little bit of pain-free movement. And along the way of Gilly trying to find out how he gets pain-free, he's learning things, right? He's learning, he's picking up on stuff, and he's, you know, a very circular thinker, looking at the whole picture, came from the golf world. So the golf world adopted slow motion decades before anybody else really did. And tennis so did too, right? tennis did too, like these specialized sports really did. So he was always like, well, let's just get a camera on this thing. And his thought process was like, Michael Jordan's flying around every night dunking. I'm the same age as him. I sneeze and my back blows out. What's the difference? Like what's going on? What, is there something that, is there a piece Besides of information? genetics too though, how did they take yeah. that? Sorry. Yeah, like just bigger questions though. But the question was posed, you know, how does a body travel through space for a lifetime and never get hurt for no apparent reason? Because when he's looking at the musculoskeletal system, he's saying, okay, this musculoskeletal system, we know for in fact, we know for a fact that it has to work through this walking cycle thousands of times a day, right? And then you expand that, you extrapolate that over a lifespan, that's a lot of walking, that's a lot of reps. So already implied that there's gotta be some sort of longevity to this musculoskeletal system. If it's meant to take that cycle thousands of times a day over a lifetime, well, it can't be breaking down. We need it. You could take the same analogy to the other systems of the body. If we look at the other systems of the body, we've diagnosed, we've cataloged them as integrated systems that move in a cycle, that have phases that move the cycle, and then inside of that cycle, they're moving something. Cardiovascular system, right? We know the integrated, I tell you the cardiovascular system, you can see the heart, you see the veins, what's it moving? The blood, okay. Digestive system, I say digestive system, you can picture the whole track, What's it moving? The food, respiratory. We could go on and on, right? There's an integrated cycle. It's got phases. It's moving something. And when we go to treat and diagnose that system, as a doctor would, they treat it as such, an, isol uh, or an integrated system that's working on a cycle. And they're trying to find the harmony or the, the sort of the tempo and the rhythm to that cycle. There's a certain way, your healthy blood pressure, if you will. Gilly was essentially saying, that's what we should do with the musculoskeletal system right? What's its cycle? What's the cycle that the musculoskeletal system has to perform thousands of times a day? What is it moving through its system thousands of times a day? And if we can get an idea of how that's supposed to go down, then we have an idea of what the longevity should look like. So it kind of really starts with the walk. And what we're trying to prove to people through this evidence of not only anatomical, but slow motion video evidence that we now have available to us. This is a big part of what makes GOTA different and why GOTA is only available or could be possible now. We've all got these iPads and these iPhones in our hands. 
right? We have this never ending library of video that's getting clearer and clearer with HD. We can now really look at movement. Like we never, you couldn't look at movement like this in the nineties. You couldn't even look at movement like this in the two thousands, right? You couldn't really just actually examine slow motion like that unless you were part of an organization or somebody that had a lot of money. So now it's just in our palms. So Gilly takes that concept and says like, is there a default? Is there an operating system here? And what we're trying to show with Goda is that yes, it is. And it's linked to that walk. We are designed to move forward through space, right? We are built, everything is leading back to that walking cycle. And like a volume dial or like a light dimmer, that walking that we see and it's nice and slow and it's methodical, you can turn it up. So the walk becomes the jog, becomes the run, becomes the throw, the swing, the cut, the juke, the jump. And so all these things that we see as separate movements, when we start with the walk and we start to see how it evolves to a run or a jog or a throw or a swing, we'll see the same behaviors, the same sort of biomarkers, if you will, the same trademarks show up in those movements. And what Gilly was saying is that if there is a cycle that's going to be going forward through space all the time, then we'll see that reflected in the anatomy. And then through that, we'll know based off the anatomy and then the slow motion evidence, how it should work. And so that's where you start to look at, Hey, the big, the big strong muscles are on the backside outside of the tissue. We could look at the fascia in where it's woven and where it gets thicker and it gets really thick at the lower back in the thoracolumbar fascia. It thickens up again on the outside of the thigh, which is what they call the IT band. There's no real true IT band, but it thickens. And then it even wraps down into the shin compartment, obviously. And if you look at those, like you just Google image musculoskeletal system, the original ankle taping is right there inside of your system. Just look at the white lines. Like the ankles literally tape through this fascia. Now fascia is becoming a, a, you know, a big buzzword, but big picture, everything in that musculoskeletal system, if you look at it from an, an anatomical standpoint of a design that's built to move forward through space, it all points back to there's a certain way that we want to load that thing and transfer that thing, and it's going to propel us forward through space. So we're trying to show people, hey, we're built to move forward. We do have the ability to go into reverse. That would be our lifting engine. So just like the design of a car, the car was designed for what? To go forward through space. That's obvious. But it's nice to have reverse gear. You can back out of the driveway. You can back out of the parking spot. We're designed for forward gear. We're designed for walk, jog, run, throw, swing, strike, cut, juke, jump. But man, it's nice that we can stop, put our feet, our heels in the ground and lift something up off the ground so that we can allocate resources. So we have a lifting capability, but it's not the default operating system. It's not the bias. We're more built for forward movement, but we have the ability to shift into reverse. So we're trying to propose a new blueprint as to how we look at, how we examine, assess, and then eventually train the human system. What does it mean to shift into reverse lifting? So if we're talking about forward and reverse gear, to kind of give it a quick 40,000 foot overview, if you're picturing someone moving forward through space, Okay. We talk about a tail to crown relationship. We'll find these two points and then you can kind of see how they're relating to each other based off the direction that we're going. So when you look at accelerating forward movement, as the movement gets louder, if you get into that run, you'll notice that the tail is going to move back. The crown of the head is going to move forward. So we're effectively going to kind of pitch the whole system in the direction that we're going, right? Athletic position, like we always used to say, get your butt back, right? Balls of the feet, 
heels are up. So when we want to go forward through space, the heel's going to lift up. We're going to be inner ankle bone high, as we would say. We'll be on the ball of our foot. We'll be on the ball of our foot. Our tail will be back. Our crown will be forward. That's going to default us towards forward movement. Now, if I want to go into reverse, the basic blueprint for that is centered around what I would say is the lift. You stop in where you're moving. You get static. You now put your heels into the ground and you do the opposite with the tail and the crown. You start here and now you bring the tail under and you pull the crown back. So you start to actually pitch the whole system in reverse. You would see this, obviously you've seen it in your Olympic lift, you see it in your deadlift, you see it in your back squat, right? This action of tail moving forward, crown moving back, heels down into the ground, which is the opposite of going forward, which would be heels up, ball of the foot, tail back, crown forward. Now we've been able to take the reverse gear and expand it to some sort of, you know, some like little niche markets, if you will. One of those being the high jump. So the high jump is a single leg reverse jump, right? They're literally jumping backwards. You'll notice the tail moves forward. The crown of the head moves back. You'd see that same behavior in a backflip. Tail moves forward. Crown of the head moves back, obviously moving backwards. And if I showed you on YouTube, the Guinness Book of World Records, the guy trying to break the fastest, I think it was the fastest backwards mile, you'll see the same thing. He is tilting his tail forward, the crown of his head is back, and he's using a different foot and ankle behavior than what we examine when we move forward through space. <clears throat> so what about when, you know, running, so yeah, when you're running backwards, um, what if, Somebody would say like, okay, running backwards, running sideways helps mm -hmm. build robustness to the system, you know, with myofascial meridians, whether it be mm -hmm. from Thomas Myers or the other person, um, just laying down fascial stress and strain to the body because stress that exceeds capacity is what leads to injury. So if you do things, you know, running backwards, not a full mile, but like, you know, within your warm up, if you're doing running backwards, if you're doing running sideways, if you're doing karaoke. Mm -hmm preparing the body for those different stressors that occur on the field. And then also when you get to upright running, <clears throat> now you are more vertical. You know, when you do mm -hmm. run horizontally, yeah, you're projecting out 45, ideally if you're strong enough, you're 45 degrees, but your weaker athletes are 60 ish. But then as you run, you get more and more upright as you hit those high speeds, it's all vertical mm -hmm. force into the ground. You know, it wouldn't be crown going backwards. So how does, maximal velocity running your fly tens your 40s how is that viewed in the go to world as well as you know karaoke sideways running things like mm -hmm. that? yeah great question so the, the first way i would frame this is that that forward gear that ability to move forward through space is the same thing that you're going to be using when you shift laterally right when you shuffle side to side it's going to be the same mechanism of the foot and the ankle, okay? And the way I'll kind of frame that to give you a picture in your, in your mind's eye, imagine that you've got a superimposed compass on the ground. So it's on the ground, it's kind of like you're in the middle of the compass, and we can kind of then use that to kind of give us directions. For, for everybody's reference, my wife will uh, agree with this, I always think I'm in the middle of a compass, and whenever <laughs> I drive, I'm going north, and when I turn left, I'm now going north again, so I'm with you. Yeah. Yes, so like it helps kind of frame that. The point is what we would show you is that there's an interesting design with the human body where we are able to decouple the visual engine. So the head and the skull and the cervical from the collarbone below. 
to prove this, if I was standing there in the middle of that compass and I wanted to turn my body, literally turn everything from the collarbone down to start to face south, but still look north, I could. It's what's, it's what's allowing a so wide like receiver. An owl, essentially? Well, what's allowing an, a wide receiver to run a go route and look back, right? So you're able to send your legs in one direction and take your vision the other way. So our system is built to be able to move forward and keep our eyes, keep move around like backwards, diagonal. Picture a DB doing his cutting drills, right? He's able to cut and break and always keep his eyes on the quarterback, right? You're always able to keep your eyes forward. So we, no matter where I'm going through space, I can still load and transfer pressure in the same sort of cycle in the same phase. So if I'm sitting there in the middle of this compass and I want to go, I'm facing north and I want to go west. Okay. I'm still going to load my one leg. I'm going to load one leg. I'm going to transfer one leg and then I'm going to load the other leg and I'm going to start, I'm going to change my line of motion. So we're really more so changing our line of motion than we are saying, Hey, that's forward. This is lateral day. No, you just took forward and you sent it that way. It's still the same mechanism of movement. It's still the same pattern. It's still the same trademarks. You're just now changing your line of motion. True reverse movement in sport, I would say you probably only see it in two spots. You see it when a basketball player wants to get back on defense. You'll see them completely stand upright, tail moves forward, crown moves back, and they'll, they'll run back as fast as they can. And then you'll also see reverse movement in a defensive back, obviously, the back pedal. Now, the reason that the backpedal looks different than, a def- than a, an NBA player getting back on defense is that this DB is going to use the backpedal to gather information on the route, to gather information on the quarterback. But once he goes to break, he has to break in a forward gear. That's why they teach the backpedal tail background forward. So you stay underneath that, that level because once you go to shift out of that backpedal position, every move that you would shift, whether I was to backpedal, put my foot in the ground and go forward, backpedal, put my foot in the ground and go 45, backpedal, put my foot in the ground and go true sideways, backpedal, put my foot in the ground and go 45 backwards, or even turn and run because they're eating up your cushion. All of those shifts from back to forward would all be go to behavior. So that's why we're saying there's a forward gear and there's a reverse gear in sports. If you really start to look at like cutting, juking, jumping and throwing and swinging, this was a big revelation for me is I'm like, it's the same pattern. It's the same thing. Like it's just pressure. You're loading pressure into one side of the body and transferring it over to the other side of the body where you want to send that line of motion. That's going to be dictated by the task and the circumstance at hand. That's going to be obviously built off of the sport that we're trying to play or whatever we're trying to do. What are some of the like biggest principles in in training in, in terms of like the big rocks? Because you talked about you know the muscular system compared mm-hmm. to the um, circulatory system, in, and within the muscular system, under like how do you guys handle the fact that you know muscles connect to bones, and then there is the nerve, the nervous system innervation of the muscles, and just mm-hmm. all of that. We'll start there before I dive into like you know how you guys classify exercises and whatnot. Yeah, you know, it's a system-wide thing. I would say that the musculoskeletal system is the framework. So I, I view it as the most important because it's what's housing everything else. If that framework, that skeletal structure starts to get compressed, 
everything else is going to be compressed because of it. And if everything else is compressed because of it, and you try to fix another system without addressing the scaffolding, without addressing the foundation of the whole house, well, then we'd be sorely mistaken. So when we're talking about muscles, ligaments, tendons, bones, what I think is important is, and this was posed by Dr. Uh, Andreo Spina from FRC. I don't know if you're yeah. familiar with FRC. Yep. Yep. He has a brilliant um, concept called bioflow. And what yeah, he like has it's shown- It's all the same thing. It's, it's all the same stuff, to, man. He calls yeah, it stuff. Like, it's just it's whether stuff. it's- Right. And so that- stuff that hardens yes. in one spot and somewhere else. Yes. So that stuff, it's all one suit. So we now know that it's an integrated suit. We, let's say we've confirmed that it's an integrated suit. I think sure. early on in musculoskeletal study, and this is one of the things that we push back on to show why we've missed the mark, is that we didn't take an integrated approach. We had an isolated cadaver approach, a kinematic approach, where we took it joint by joint, and we, we had a dead body on a table, and somebody else moving the dead body and saying, hey, move it on the sagittal. All right, call that dorsiflexion. All right, move it on the frontal, uh, supination, pronation. And we just made up these ranges that were isolated. Then we said, let's train those ranges. Now the new information that's coming out with a, you know, a, a Dr. Andre Ospina, um, Thomas Myers, um, you know, Kelly Surratt talking about torque principles, talking about integration. Um, you know, there's, a, there's other movement systems that are talking about 3D movement, right? Multiplanar movement. And, and that's where we're trying to get to is that it's all a cohesive system that has to work together. So there's an implied harmony to that system. When that system is harmonized, the musculoskeletal system, because it's the scaffolding, because it's the framework, we're giving ourselves a really good chance to find success with our system as opposed to that system being less than desirable, not moving like it should, we have to find out, well, what is desirable? What, what, what's the ideal? What's good? What's bad? Right? We have to put, a, we have to put some definitions to that. <clears throat> How are exercises classified within the GOTA system? Mm -hmm. And how is like speed work and conditioning classified? It, it, I'm interested. Yeah. So I would say the way that we are going to, we, we talk about like recoding behavior. So we, we look at the musculoskeletal system as this goes back to the Philip Beach work that I talked about, where there's an embryological perspective that we take at the beginning of this thing. We're looking at how the embryo develops inside the system. And we're looking at that as a, here's the design. And I can talk more about like how the tissue is actually designed and why it's plugged into the foot a certain way and, and why that matters, how we train it. But when we're going to rehabilitate or recode someone or take them through our, our program, we really have a all fours to a single leg approach. So a, a basic progression that you could look at through a child development, you could go through it yourself from you're on the ground to now you want to stand. There's just a basic progression there. And we want our clients to regain strength, control, comfort and endurance first in all fours in some of the various arc, you know, movements that we'll place into the all fours. And then we call them pivot points. So pivot points would be what's in the ground, like what's closing the chain down. So when you're in all fours, you've got your two hands, you got your two kneecaps and you got your two feet. So you have six points of contact with the ground. This allows you to disperse pressure. So we would say that the thing that the musculoskeletal system is moving, we talked about every system of the body has something that's moving through a cycle. The thing that's being moved by the, the musculoskeletal is the body weight, the pressure. We use the weight of the suit to move the suit. So we drop our weight into one side, 
we use all that sewing to load it up and then launch it. So we're dealing with this pressure, but it would be a problem if I took somebody that's I'm identifying as having an issue with their movement and said, hey, let's just localize all this pressure into a single leg and let's just go right there. No, we've got to disperse the pressure first. We'll bring you back to all fours. We'll realign you. And as we're realigning you, we'll sort of start to change the way that your body wants to handle or accept that pressure as it loads into each side of the body. So we start on all fours, then we, we remove the hands. Now we got four pivot points, a little more challenging, still trying to work on the same thing. How am I aligning my structure and how is it behaving as the pressure flows in and out of each side of the body? Then we take another two pivot points off. Now you're on just your feet. Now you just got your two feet to help localize the pressure and get into alignment. Gonna be way more challenging than four or six pivot points. Then we work into one foot. Now we're on one foot. This is gonna be the most challenging part of our recode because we're gonna localize all the pressure into a single leg. In that recode program of all fours to single leg is going to take a cadence of let's ISO the position. Let's just give our brain a second to like, okay, what is this position? How am I doing it? Is there a mirror in front of me? Let's give them a ton of awareness, tons of feedback early on. Then let's start to kind of change that, right? Let's start to like, you know, we're working from, from all fours. We're going through a single leg. We're going to progress. We're going to ISO it. We're going to pulse the movement, small movements to start. Then we're going to start to flow and get more of the range. So we'll get our suppleness back. We'll get our mobility back. But first we address the alignment and the pressure. So we take an all fours to a single leg approach in a rehabilitative, corrective prehab, rehab, you know, the warm up stuff, the cool down stuff is kind of like the meat and potatoes of the program. It's the starting point. Taking a quick break from the show to talk to you guys about our sponsor, Team Builder. If you have any online training platform needs, Team Builder is the go-to place. Team Builder has the ability to integrate with velocity-based training tools. They have the ability to program and have notes and videos for all of your athletes and your clients. This is your number one stop shop. Been using it since 2019 when I was working at Towson. So I've used it, love it. Make sure you check it out. Go ahead, click the link down in the description. And with that, let's get back to the show. Then it goes into the performance side. That's where it's like, okay, let's move the landmine around. Let's move the sled. Let's move the henny. Let's, let's, let's cut. Let's juke. Let's jump. Let's throw. Let's swing. Let's get into more pressure in the system that is going to be numbers that are going to be through the roof. If I think of myself just standing, I'm an idol. The pressure is very low. There's not that much pressure that I got to organize and hold on to. As I start to jog, the pressure gets higher. As I start to sprint, the pressure gets higher. We get into the jump, the cut, the juke. That's going to be the most amount of pressure you're going to have to deal with. So if we're going to recode someone, if we're going to take them through our system from beginning to end, we'd start them in all fours. We'd progress them to a single leg. How long we spend there, that's always going to be a part of the system. But how long it takes to get through that is going to be case dependent. But we're trying to get those athletes specifically to that performance wing of GOTA where now we're starting to layer strength and endurance and even further skill development into a more robust, durable musculoskeletal system. <clears throat> so if somebody's in the all four plane and they have sick, they have their hands, knees and toes on the ground, are they doing athletic running, cutting? They, yes, they, they could be. Absolutely. So like it would kind of, the system would build off itself. So the all fours is never going to be taken away. You're just going to be, you're, you're going to do less of it. When you're starting off on all fours, like the first program, the first routine that we give people, 
you have six points of contact throughout the whole routine. So it's four exercises. You have six points of contact. It's going to be very, you know, low intensity, very easy. We get to the second workout. Now we still have six points of contact on a few of the exercises, but now we bring in a couple exercises where we take your hands off the ground. So now you're like in a kneeling position and it's going to be way more challenging on your lower back and your, in your glutes when you're in a kneeling position versus an all fours position. Then we go to the third workout. Now we have still some of the six pivot points. There's still some all fours in there. We have more of the four pivot points. And now we start to bring in a couple of the two pivot point exercises. And then by the end of it, you would have an exercise routine that had a six pivot point, a four pivot point, a two, but more of a focus on the one. So you just kind of shift focus to more intensity on the more cha- the, whatever you're working on at that point. And then once you get into performance and stuff, it becomes your warm up. We've got a list of exercises that we do, maybe ten or you know t- eight or ten exercises that are going to kind of give you a nice, clean, you know, warm, ready to go feeling. And then let's go and let's let's fly around a little bit. <clears throat> so for me, the way that I break up exercises is very similar-ish to what you were maybe used to at Iowa: ground-based explosive, you know, knee dominant, um, lower body, uh, posterior chain dominant, posterior chain, so knee dominant and hip dominant. Uh, horizontal push, horizontal pull, vertical push, vertical pull, and then the torso can get broken down into extension, anti-extension, rotation, anti-rotation, lateral flexion, anti-lateral flexion, flexion, anti-flexion. Would an exercise like a trap bar deadlift, bench press, reverse lunge, single leg RDL, glute ham raise, are those things within the performance world of GOTA? I would say that things that you would look at and go, Ooh, that's similar to this that I've done before. You know, it kind of like the idea of a lunge. Let's just say that, right? The idea of like one foot in front of the other. You know what I mean? A split stance type of movement. Yeah, mm-hmm. we've got split stance types and do move, those type get of movement. Loaded so that way you can yeah follow, like progress. Yeah, overload you progress the said principle. Absolutely. Like once you're getting into that, once you're getting into like the, the gym world, it's going to be a lot of like two pivot point, one pivot point. So a lot of bilateral, unilateral, obviously. Um, we are once again, focused on the forward gear. So we stay out of the lift derivative. So we, we don't have the Olympics, the deadlifts, um, anything that's a pull how below the, like what if you yeah, did, like, oh, yeah, a, you'll jump. A, a yeah. weighted jump instead, like how about an RDL or RDL is better than a deadlift or no? We will do a forward fold. We'll do like some hinge type work, like some, you know, you know, hands to ground type stuff. What we're looking to avoid specifically is there's a weight below the belt and I'm going to pull that weight up because that's going to bring in, once again, like we talked about the tail back crown forward. We want to train that because that's going to, when we go to move around in space, we actually stay decompressed by shifting the tail back and the crown forward. This gives the torso and the limbs, the space it needs to articulate and to handle those pressure numbers. So we don't want our system for our athletes. We don't want their systems to when the pressure hits and they've got to drive and they got to load and transfer pressure, we don't want them to train this into their system. I don't want them to go tail forward, crown back. I want them to be able to load and transfer with the tail back, crown forward. So we'll lean on a landmine, like lean on meaning we'll use that heavily in the system. We'll use the sled. We'll use a Henny. I'm sure you're familiar with the Henny machine. No, what's it's like. It's like the jammer that we had at Iowa where like you're kind of like you're pressing through this guy built. He was a fullback in the NFL, but he built a um, 
it's, you take two, two TRX bands and you hang them off the rack and you put a bar through it. So now you can like push the bar in, from the rack out and forward, like creates that like forward gear type of setting. So we're always looking at our exercises as can the tail stay back, can the crown stay forward, and can the heel stay up? Can we stay inner ankle bone high? So just because of those, you know, sort of rules, um, philosophy from our system, we stay away from any heel down movement and we stay away from any like, you know, upright spine to then eventually tail forward, crown back movement. So we have, you know, we limit ourselves in certain aspects for, for good reason. And it, it is only based off of that evidence that, you know, that I was talking about having forward gear, having reverse gear and all those types of things. So the lift is kind of the, that's the biggest struggle for us in strength coaches is uh, well, how does this go to fit into our system? If, if I am deadlifting and I'm this and that, and, and what I say to people is, look, that's a, like, we're never going to, we're not going to get all of this figured out on this podcast. Let's say if you were interested in bringing GOTA into your system, but what I would tell coaches is like, just start with 10% of it, 20% of it, put it on the front end, like do a TCU. We have TCU football right now, kind of bringing GOTA into their system. And the way that they're using it is it was just the first 30 minutes of their day. So just the first 30 minutes, they were going to go through a little routine with, with, with their coach. Um, and then what eventually happened was they were like, Oh, I kind of like that, that concept, that derivative let's bring, you know, that piece into the strength world and let's, let's put that. And so I think coaches will have a better taste for GOTA, a better acceptance of GOTA. If it's, let's not rip the bandaid off your program. Let's I just want to show you some stuff and give you some ideas to kick around. And I think it's best suited as taking a corrective lens for you early on. Let it be your warm up. Let it be your prehab. Let it be your, however you want to phrase it, foot and ankle, you know, integrity, um, low back integrity, all that kind of stuff. Um, give you space, give you length, give you suppleness. Let's get rid of the pulled muscles and the, the back aches and those types of things. Let's take care of as much as we can. And then let that kind of speak to you as a coach. Let that speak to you as a system. And then if you want to bring more GOATA into it, that's fine. I think that there's, you know, if you have 20% GOATA, I'd rather you have 20% GOATA in your system than none. You know, I, I kind of look at it that way. And because we're not going to come to agreement on the lifting, but it's a conversation that I think that is just good to have and, and kind of piece together. And there's a lot of evidence that goes into what we're doing. And a lot of like, we got to just kind of sit down and go through that evidence with these coaches to make them believe what we're saying. Cause I'm sure there's a lot of people that are going to be listening right now at this point and being like, no lifts, no Olympics. Like they're going to be, I don't want you to be, I don't, I don't want really you to do be turning. Lifts with my athletes, so. Well, there you go. So that, that's I helpful. Do, I don't do, I don't, I don't hang clean them. I mean, we will do right. snatches and jerks, but I mean, I just don't want someone's like, you're a quarterback. I mean, I don't, I would, I honestly, when I was working at Towson, I wanted to kill myself if any of my football players were thrown, <laughs> couldn't practice or play if they hurt yeah. themselves with a, with a hand clean. Like, I know it's tough. And so it's a like, how can I there. break yeah. the lift down into its component parts? And on the show, I had a guy named Jeff Jones, who was the head strength coach at Arkansas state. Mm-hmm. And they break it down into RDL loaded jump altitude landing. I'm like, perfect. There it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, that's what I would say is that there's, you know, we're not trying to, that, that's where we've run into problems in the past. And I, and I, I don't think you knew about GoTa in those earlier days, like 2019, 2020, 2021, but we had such a, like this with us and the strength coaches. And that's why I was like, so excited to come and do this. Cause it's kind of like, we've like almost rebranded and there's different ownership now with me and, and Gary and a different kind of pulse and a different way that we want to frame this for coaches. And 
and we, we really just want to have the conversation with you. Like we just want to talk about it and like kind of flesh it out and let you see where we're coming from with this evidence. And, and really the goal is just to give you more evidence. We're like, Hey, look, we, like I said, 2015, I was Olympic lifting. I was doing all of these things. Like Gary was doing the same things in his gym. So we all had to kind of re-examine what we were doing. But the only thing that made us do that was the evidence, like the evidence in the thought process of like, okay, what, you know, what is this piece of evidence telling me now that I have it? I didn't have it before, but I have this new piece of evidence. Can I use this and harness it? And I think there's a lot of, you know, similarities. Like you talk about posterior chain dominance and these types of things. Like that's something that you could, you could take that, maybe just take that one concept and say, okay, I'm going to bring these four or five goat exercises into my system because they are posterior chain dominant. And I'm going to use them in that, that area of my um, routine. I think that's a great way for a strength coach that maybe is unsure about Gota but wants to try it out. Start slow because the system is built to start slow. So you don't have to go in there and pull the floorboards out and rechange everything that you're doing. Just start with the basic groundwork stuff. Use it as your prehab, rehab. And then, you know, as you get the time to think about it more, you can see it progress maybe into other parts of your system. <clears throat> for our listeners out there that are hearing and you said that evidence out there, what what are the evidence, what are the things that you're referring to that they would be able to, to go and analyze? Yeah, I think if you're, you know, looking for like what we've put out there, you could, you know, just check us out on Instagram or on YouTube. There's a lot of stuff there. But what we're looking for first and foremost is a couple things. So when you're talking about that idea of like, how did we study this? You're talking about, okay, if, if all the systems of the body are integrated systems that are moving something, Okay, then what's the musculoskeletal system cycle and what is it moving? Okay, it's, it's moving on a load transfer recoil type of cycle and it's moving pressure. Okay, then let's try to find out who was doing that the best versus who was doing that the worst. So you kind of set up like I would call it a security spectrum. On one end, you have people that are, let's say, more durable than their counterparts. You have these people that just seem to be like Mr. Glass. They're always getting hurt. They've had a lot of non-contact injuries. They can't get rid of that injury bug. So somebody that's having a lot of injuries, we want to study them. But somebody that's having a lot of success and a lot of durability, I want to kind of look at them as well and see if anything can you know, be taken from that information. So we really have this security spectrum of good and bad. Let the behaviors kind of sift through and then see what we see. From that point there, that's where, we've got, that's where we got our sort of global laws that we, that we train off of. But it came from those groups. We call them the four tribes. The tribes that we looked at was child development, so kind of linking with that embryological development, now into the child development, the motor skill layering of, you know, crawl, you know, sit up, crawl, all the, the rolling and the walking and all that, just that early stages into even into, you know, childhood and, um, you know, adolescence. Then we also looked at the indigenous cultures. So that was a big one for Gilly was, the tribes that are butt naked, barefoot, deep in the Amazon, no real human contact, not living a similar lifestyle to us, doing a couple key things that we don't do that we can start to assimilate into our daily routine that more people are talking about. One, the footwear options that are now being talked about more and more. Two, the resting options. So we are now having this discussion about Hey, are we, should we be sitting in chairs? You know, are, are chairs our best option for uh, while we're while we're resting? And then we had this. Hey, it's a stand-up desk. What Philip Beach proposed, which I think is just absolutely brilliant, because I think he hits it right on the head, is that the ground is where we're built to rest. 
And if you look at just those two tribes right there, child development and the indigenous cultures, what you will see is you will see a series of postures, a series of poses, you could say, that are innate and they're across culture all over the world. Meaning my child that was born here in Cleveland is assimilating into these similar ground postures as a woman in Bangladesh. And there's no teaching of these postures. There's no explanation for why they're here, but they are here. And if anybody's had a child and you've tried to put that child into a chair, you will notice that they actually sit in the ground resting postures in the chair and they only learn how to sit into a chair once you teach them how to sit into a chair. So there's a whole nother component to this go to thing that we haven't really even scratched yet, but that's kind of this, what I'm talking about is like lifestyle. I'd say 10% your training. You got this other 90% we could up level. And so one of those important tribes for giving not only a look as to the movement in the multiplanar movement of you know the forward gear, but also the resting options, the lifestyle options. So the indigenous cultures deep in the Amazon, like the Karubo, the Yanomame, the Zoe, even some of the tribes in, in Africa, like the Hadza or the Maasai, these are good tribes to kind of look at. And you can start to see some of the movement qualities that we're speaking of when it comes to durable humans along with two more groups that are very important because we want to capture the lifespan. So we've got the child, we've got the indigenous culture, we've got two things that are, you could argue are closer to what would be deemed natural. So it gives us maybe more of a natural lens. That third group would be what we call your super athlete, your decade plus athlete that's able to go largely unscathed from an injury perspective. Nobody's going to prevent all injuries. That's impossible. They're going to happen. There's contact scenarios. There's a lot of shit going on when you're playing sports. But who's able to be just more durable? Who's able to push that, you know, per game, you know, games per season number? You got guys like, you got John Stockton, AC Green. You look at Jordan and the numbers that he was able to put up, you know, nine times going 82 games. The second best guy did five. All right, well, let's take a look at Jordan. I mean, that's a lot of durability. Um, you know, you look at... Um, you got Ed Reed, you got Simone Biles, who's kind of in a different category, Randy Moss. There's a lot of people I kind of get, there's a lot of soccer athletes that people have presented to me. There's, there's durability to be studied in the professional sports world, right? We, we kind of marvel at it when it does show itself. Um, and so we kind of want to get a lens on those people and maybe learn something from them. The last group would be the 70 plus age group at the track and field world championships. So we want to see some elders, right? We want to see some elders that can still move around in space maybe haven't had a knee or a hip replacement, can, they, can, can their movement corroborate with the other groups in their movement? And what's important with that evidence is that not any one person or one group that I said there is what the study is built off of. It's built off of a collection of what we saw as a whole from those groups. Let that be like, we want to sift. I want to sift their best behaviors, see what it's telling us about durable movement. At the same time, we're doing that with non-contact injuries. We're doing that with hip replacement, joint replacement candidates. We're doing that with chronic pain people, right? Why are they in chronic pain? So I want to see the behaviors that sift through there. So that's really where that study starts in, in kind of the evidence that we look at. If someone's looking to, to understand why we train balls of the foot, inner ankle bone high, look no further than like a non-contact injury scenario, which has been fumbled. The bag's been fumbled. I saw you kind of post about that, you know, talk about injury prevention and that type of stuff. And in why I think for good reason, why coaches scoff at it right now. And, and, and they kind of should because it's been bastardized. It's been, it's been sold to us as something that it's absolutely not. We're not preventing injury. We're, we're not stopping ACLs. They're only going up. We're not, we're not stopping Achilles. They're only going up. 
And the reason that we aren't stopping them or at least mitigating them in any way, shape or form is because we've got a, we've got the wrong blueprint. Like if a body's meant to go forward through space and has these specific ideals that we need to match and we're not addressing those in a prevention program, then we're going to have issues. So there's a lot of places that you could look. If you're looking for a you know, curated version of it, I would look YouTube and Instagram. But the first places that Gilly told me to look for evidence was ACL contacts, ACL non-contacts, any kind of non-contact, the lifting derivative, what's going on at the foot level right there with those two things. And then he told me, hey, look at Mike. Watch Michael Jordan slow motion. Watch Randy Moss slow motion. Watch Ed Reed. Um, you know, watch Simone Biles. Watch some of these decade plus athletes. Watch the Karubo tribe. There's tons of video on YouTube. New Atlantis. So go to New Atlantis docuseries and you'll see tons of video on the Karubo, the Yanomame. And you can start to screen record. You can just screen record off your phone. That's a cool part about what makes Go to different is that people are like, oh, so you guys are doing, you know, you guys figured it out. We didn't invent anything. Nothing here is invented. It is just an uncovering. It's a discovering. And it's only there because we now have the ability to slow things down in the palm of our hand. We now have a YouTube and a social media plethora library that we can dig into. We didn't have those things. We couldn't look at Randy Moss slow for motion. And we certainly couldn't look at the Karubo. <clears throat> what about any of the like oh, people that those decade long plus athletes, like uh, I'm thinking about uh, the ability to have, you know, good access to good nutrition, good sleep, mm -hmm. all of those variables that go into the injury cycle. Like how does that get translated, taken care of within the, the go to world? Yeah. I think those are, those are of course valid things. Like, you know, I think no matter what we're leveling up, our ability to understand, understand nutrition. We're leveling up our ability to understand sleep. We're under, we're leveling up our ability to under, you know, understand what I was saying is that 90%, the lifestyle. So that's where I would throw that stuff in. Like, Hey man, what are you eating? Are you eating well? Are you sleeping well? Are you resting well? Are you getting all of those things in your system? Because if not that other area of the body or that other area of the day, if it's neglected, that can be a real issue for you going into a game. I mean, why not give yourself the best chance? for success. Why would you limit yourself? Um, there's, there's that approach. And then there's also, well, we know stories of Michael Jordan drinking nine beers, smoking two cigars and then dropping 50 a game. So there's a little bit of like, you know, old school mentality. And then nowadays we're hyper analyzing everything. We have data on everything. We've, we're counting every calorie. We're thinking, I think there's a balance there where you got to have a little bit of like, you know, wolf in you and you can just go and get it at any point. Um, but at the same time, don't be stupid, you know, like take care of your, your nutrition, like eat well, feel good about yourself. Don't get lethargic because you ate, you know, Fabo's pizza and you were getting ready to go to a game and you should have had something else. Right. It's like, so there's, there's that, I think common sense that, that would obviously go into your preparation. As you talk about inside ankle bone high, has there ever been a time where there's inside ankle bone high and there is an injury? Has there ever been times where there's inside ankle bone not high and no injury um, within the studies that has that you guys that you've been talking about? Yeah, no. So we've never been able to find, and that was one of Gilly's big things is that we kept looking for it. Like we were, you know, almost certain that we would run into it at some point. But we were never able to find a non-contact ACL, a non-contact Achilles, a non-contact hyperextension, a non-contact you know ankle break, ankle roll that you'll see every now and again. We were never able to see those um, take place with what we would call an inside ankle bone high, 
bow behavior through the leg and torso upper limb region. So when the, when, when the leg is landing, like we're saying it should land and it's not just the leg, it is the torso and the upper limb. I try to kind of microscope it just for these conversations so we can just focus on the foot and the ankle. But when it's landing, how we say it should land, it doesn't fall apart. On the contrary, have there been landings that are um, less than desirable that go unscathed? Of course, the body will not break down the first time that you do this forward pattern incorrectly, right? Thank God, right? <laughs> like, thank goodness. And it's, it's the same principle that is applied to your bicep muscle. You know you can't do one bicep curl and have Arnold's biceps. You know, you have to go ahead and put the time into that. So what I think is happening to these non-contact scenarios is that it's like string cheese. It's death by a thousand cuts. I think that over time, if my pattern gets a little bit off, it's like a railroad on the tracks. It just gets off a little bit and then I keep going, I keep going. And then eventually we have an explosion. We have a real problem down the line that started as something very small and then extrapolated over time. It became a problem. So when you're looking at someone's movement, what we're trying to, to place on the table is what if we had a way to almost minority report, like look at someone's movement and be like, hey, this has the trappings. This has the signatures of what I see in ACL non-contacts, in Achilles non-contacts. Why don't we try to clean up that behavior to look more like these behaviors that we see from durable humans that we aren't seeing in a non-contact scenario? Let's get closer to that. And let's see how we feel. Let's see how we perform. And that's what we've kind of taken advantage point on is, is let's just try to get you closer to these type of movement behaviors because they seem to be linked to durability. The evidence is pointing that they're linked to durability. And from our best you know, knowledge based off of the evidence of injury, like these types of behaviors, these types of movements at the foot and the ankle seem to continually break down. Let's move away from them, but let's move away from them towards something new that something new hasn't really been on the table before. And that's where we have to kind of explain what we mean by inner ankle bone, high bow and all those types of things. Because if you don't know what I'm talking about, then it's, it's a, it's a conversation that isn't going to go anywhere. Hey Amen. I feel like I could talk with you about this uh, stuff all day. So any of our listeners out there that have made it this hour and a half with us, go ahead and, you know, follow, follow Rick and continue to learn on the journey. But, um, Man, I just appreciate being able, like you said, have an open and honest conversation about mm -hmm. uh, some different things that are out there in the world, man. So I appreciate you for educating me and uh, yeah, have a great rest of your day. Yeah, man, I appreciate you. Anybody, and I would, I would tell this to you too, Justin, if you guys want to learn more about this and get like the, the initial understanding of how we came up with these origins philosophies, we offer a, a go to level one. So our, our level one certification is free. Um, it's a level, it's a, it's a three week masterclass. So we'll have some video lessons. We'll have some zoom calls, plenty of opportunity to kind of look at our material, see some of that evidence, and then ask some questions to Gary and I, um, to get a, a firmer understanding. So if any of you are interested, um, we're always opening up classes. They'll be going on from now until whenever. Um, and it's just a three week masterclass. We have our calls on Friday, little zoom call pair with some lessons. So if you guys are interested, go to, um, go to movement on Instagram and you can click the link in our bio and, and you can get yourself signed up through there. You heard the man. Appreciate it. Uh, Rick, have a good rest of your day. You too as well. Thank you.